Did you know that on the coast of Louisiana is a bazaar, an abandoned fort like no other? That's right, in the melting pot of French, Spanish, English, African, and Caribbean cultures, these are the historic ruins of Fort Proctor. But how did this come to be, and why did it ultimately fail? Today we discover the rise and fall of Fort Proctor. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. The dramatic image of a forgotten fort like this is very stirring, but for context, you need to remember that when this structure was built, America was a very paranoid place. Recalling our previous video on Fort Jefferson, the United States spent much of the 1840s and 50s feverishly building new coastal fortifications around the southern states and the Gulf of Mexico. This was because the United States had no small list of possible enemies, and much of the South and Gulf coastlines were critically unprotected. Such was the case for the strategic city of New Orleans. It was the most significant city on the coastline as it was built upon the outlet of the Mississippi River. Hence it served as a deciding authority for the flow into the rivers that served the internal United States. For many years, it had been one of the most prosperous port cities in the country. In fact, during the War of 1812, the British Empire even attempted an invasion of Louisiana through this region. Apparently, British Vice Admiral Cochrane convinced the Admiralty of the new possibility of invading New Orleans to challenge the legality of the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon and the rapidly expanding French Empire in late 1814. In December of that year, he put his plan into motion. Warned by an anonymous letter, the limited American Navy and Army began to organize. This squadron consisted of five gunboats, the schooner USS Seahorse and the sloop of war USS Alligator. The five American gunboats only had numbered designations, so for the sake of simplicity, I won't list them here. Opposite them, in the Royal Navy, were the frigates of Cochin's squadron, HMS Sophie, Armide, and Seahorse. Still, the waters the American vessels gathered in were too shallow for Cochin's ships of the line to follow. You see, without local pilots, they ran a high risk of being destroyed or captured in what was, in all actuality, a weaker force. Gathering local pilots for the mission wasn't an option, so Cochin and 2nd Commander Lockyer of the Sophie had to get creative. The Royal Navy set out with 40 barges and launches, each armed with sailors, marines, and carronades borrowed from their mothership. In total, 980 sailors and marines were ready to draw in close and battle with the Americans. The American squadron had positioned itself at the mouth of Lake Bourne, and on December the 14th, the British commenced their attacks. With the gunboats too slow to react and having too little clearance to maneuver, they were all boarded and captured after vicious combat. The Alligator and Seahorse were both scuttled when it was clear the battle was lost. The British suffered 94 killed or wounded, which was less than a tenth of their force. And it was this that summarily destroyed any naval opposition to a British invasion of New Orleans and the wider Louisiana Territory. Although the American army would eventually force them back and the British Empire would concede any opposition to the Louisiana Purchase, the Lake Bourne Battle would have long-lasting effects on the Gulf Coast and the broader United States. 
In other words, things were getting political, and whenever politics come into play, so does the media, which is why I'd like to take a moment to tell you about Ground News. Ground News is an app and website I frequently use to find sources for our content, an ideal solution because the platform makes it easy to compare news sources, read between the lines of media bias, and break free from algorithms. And it's the perfect place for a history buff like yourself. For example, I just read an article about a 2,300-year-old mummy that was digitally unwrapped after being discovered a century ago. And if there was any ulterior motive to the story, we'd notice, because Ground News reports bias distribution. We can even swipe through the headlines from left, center, to right-leaning bias sources and compare the language in the article headlines to see how all sides are reporting the same story. From there, we can click in and read each article from its original source to get the full picture. So stay fully informed on issues like this and more at ground.news/itshistory. Subscribe for unlimited access to media transparency, bias blind spots, and comparative reporting coverage. Thank you to Ground News for kindly sponsoring this video. With the memory of the War of 1812 fresh in mind, the southern states demanded that their coast be guaranteed the security they rightfully deserved. You see, a massive building spree would occur in the south constructing new forts or expanding old ones. So naturally, this reached New Orleans in the small town of Proctorville not long after, in March of 1855. And this was when the construction of a new fort at Proctor's Landing began. The location was both strategic and historic, as the British Empire's army landed there after destroying the naval squadron at Lake Bourne. And although the construction of such a fort would be very cumbersome, the man who directed it would receive a world of prestige. Major Beauregard was chosen to oversee the project. He was a logical choice, unlike the previous series of commanders we mentioned in our Fort Jefferson video. Anyhow, Beauregard had worked for years repairing and revitalizing the existing Louisiana Fort Jackson, the Philp, the local Mint, and building the most recent New Orleans Customs House. This was merely a midpoint in what could only be described as an exciting and eventful career. Beauregard was born at a local sugar plantation in the St. Bernard Parish in 1818. The family was a mix of French, Italian, and Welsh ancestry. As a boy, he would ride horses and take boats through the waterways surrounding his family's estate. He didn't even learn to speak English until he was 12, living in a New York boarding school, but after his term there, he attended West Point, he was also an army engineer under General Winfield Scott in the Mexican-American War. Serving eloquently, he was promoted and distinguished as major, at which time construction began. Many in Louisiana considered this a proud moment. A locally raised officer was building the fort. It is for this reason that it received the nickname Fort Beauregard. But given that another fort deeper in North Louisiana and at least one other defense fort in South Carolina had that as its legal and proper name, we'll be referring to this fort as Fort Proctor. After so much hard work and diligence of duty, many in New Orleans, especially the St. Bernard Quarter he hailed from, were rightfully confident the fort would be completed to defend their home city. Beauregard's fort was a simple square, two-story castle design in the Renaissance style. His engineers secured a foundation by sinking stone into marshy soil, although documentation does not describe the method used. The first floor was laid specifically for the accommodation of the men, 
The second floor, meanwhile, was to be armed with eight cannons, with two in each corner for a 360-degree field of fire. A third open floor was intended to include parapet walls and more cannons, but it was never completed. The fort's magazine stood well-armored in the center of the building, too well-armored, in fact, for many field and naval cannons at the time to penetrate it. Oddly given its purpose, Fort Proctor showed a significant value in the comfort of its soldiers. The walls had windows wide enough to provide decent daylight. It was even meant to have outdoor toilets for the soldiers with proper plumbing. Also planned but never included were doors and fixings more decorative than those in other forts of this size. However, you've probably noticed a pattern by now. Modest and practical as this plan was, nothing was finished. The building was only completed up to one and a half stories, but why was this the case? Well, in 1860, a hurricane ensured minimal practical work could advance the fort's construction. Now, if you thought you could watch a video on New Orleans and not have it be interrupted by the events of a hurricane, you probably don't know the area that well. New Orleans past writes that the hurricane of 1860 was incredibly violent. From September the 14th to 15th, Southeast Louisiana was blanketed by torrential rains and hail. Wharfs were ripped away as the water reached six feet over the high tide level. Other buildings, such as the lighthouse Bayou St. John, were damaged beyond repair. They indicate it was the third lighthouse built at that location. Damages exceeded a million dollars once taken all into account. As for the details of how this storm affected Fort Proctor, well, there aren't many. But as Proctor's Landing was an excessively open area sitting right on the coast, it would have seen some of the worst high tides and tremendous rip currents. At the very least, most of the construction work that had been done that year was taken apart by the storm. However, the bricks and earthworks stayed together so that they could resume. Even so, efforts were basically doomed as an even more significant storm loomed over Louisiana and the entire United States. Construction of Fort Proctor never seriously resumed after the hurricane, and one apparent reason was the commencement of the American Civil War that following year. Although the fort did sit in an important strategic position, neither the state of Louisiana nor the Confederate government intended to finish it. It wasn't a priority, and the most likely points of attack by the Union through the Mississippi River and up the Gulf of Mexico were already covered by much more impressive and significant forts. With the knowledge available, it's not even stated if the defense had any guns installed. The New Orleans-centered army did use Fort Proctor as a monitoring station. From there, they could at least survey the coast and approaches to New Orleans and reopen them in the case of a Union invasion or Allied blockade runners. So considering how much went into this, let's examine whether or not the fort was ever actually needed or if the chosen location was as strategic as it was originally thought to be. As part of Winfield Scott's Anaconda Plan, the Confederacy was to be cut off from all means of naval commerce. New Orleans, being the wealthiest port city in any secession state, had to be captured and occupied, cutting off exports and dominating a significant component of the Mississippi River. In April of 1862, the dramatically reinforced Union Navy invaded the city. On the 18th, Admiral Farragut had his force of 21 mortar boats move to a bombardment position, raining fire 
and led on Fort Jackson. Day after day, the Federal fleet made incremental progress until Fort Jackson and Philip were within range of their naval rifles and mortars. Finding their gunpowder was too weak or moist, the rebel forts couldn't reach back in retaliation. So once the Confederate forts and river locks had been bypassed, the Union Navy closed into range of the weaker rebel Navy and sunk or ignored them. In the end, even while the forts still attempted to hold back Farragut and his fleet, the Confederate militia behind them had yet to fire a shot. You see, the city of New Orleans had negotiated conditions of surrender, but without wider Confederacy approval, as it was clear that they couldn't be repelled by the sea or land. Farragut's slow, grinding, methodical attacks and mortar bombardments had made defending the inlet to the Mississippi River impossible. He grouped down the impressive Jackson and Philip without taking significant damage to his fleet. And in doing so, he captured perhaps the most critical city in the new Confederacy, guaranteeing the Anaconda Plan's success so long as the Union blockade could hold. He guaranteed a place in the American Navy's history by winning its single most defensive strategic victory yet. So what's my point? Well, they bypassed the need to land a fighting army. Hence, you might even say that Fort Proctor was pointless altogether. The capture of New Orleans is a defining moment in the American Civil War. For the remainder of the conflict, the city would be an uncontested Union strongpoint from where armies marched the Mississippi River to support General Grant in capturing the river and crippling the Confederate supply lines and economy. General Beauregard, as I stated, had a long and exciting career during the Civil War. He was the one to order the cannon bombardment of Fort Smutter, starting the war when he eventually accepted the surrender of his Old West Point instructor, Major Robert Anderson. As a rebel general, he traveled across the South, fighting the Union Army in the name of the Confederacy. He predicted that under the cover of night, a Union naval force would be able to navigate the Mississippi River, freely bombard the forts, and perhaps even make it into the city and shoot it up before daybreak. He fought on and eventually took command of most coastal defenses on the southeast coast. Nevertheless, he couldn't change the war's outcome and surrender on April the 26th, 1865. Ultimately, he would die on February the 20th, 1893. Fort Proctor is now uniquely alone on the coastal passes outside of New Orleans. After the Civil War, further efforts were needed to finish the fort, which still stands abandoned. And with time, rising waters and of course hurricanes have caused it to weather and sink. The inside of the fort is not safe or accessible, but the outside can easily be reached and explored by boat or kayak. However, unlike our other videos on similar constructions, it's challenging to call Fort Proctor a failure. Well, unfinished indeed, it is unique for an American fort given its Renaissance castle exterior. It also tried to guarantee the comfort of its soldiers with the limited space it took up. Well, it is relatively small in all respects. Its construction had minimal economic cost compared to Fort Jefferson. Its lack of glory is not a failure but a victim to circumstance. And now, falling apart as it might be, it stands resolutely guarding the city of New Orleans. And we'll leave it there for today. Please consider supporting the channel by clicking subscribe 
or hit that join button if you'd like to watch ad-free versions of all our videos. Until next time, this is Ryan Sokash signing off.